Father, I thank you that we can get a glimpse of that joy right now as we sing your praises, as we declare your excellencies, as we uh, praise you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you, Lord God. And Father, I pray that uh, we would uh, now, as we look in your word, you would just bless our time, help us to understand what you intended, help us to respond as you desire, so that you'd be glorified. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Um, You know, it's interesting, before I came to faith, I thought I had come to faith, but I didn't. I could care less about the things of the Lord, really honestly, um, even though I feigned that, in a sense, in my own mind. But uh, now that uh, the Lord's got a hold of my heart, I just can't wait to tell what he has promised. And uh, it's night and day, night and day. Well, with that in mind, if you're a believer, uh, we know that this life has got trouble. It's got trouble for non-believers because sin brings consequences, but for believers, uh, you might have thought when you turned to trust in Jesus that things would have gotten easy. Well, the reality is uh, when you trust in Jesus Christ, you immediately have an enemy, that's Satan, that you didn't have before, and you immediately have uh, the difficulties of temptation in those areas. Uh, we battle against the world, uh, the flesh, our own flesh, and the devil. And it's difficult. We're in a fight. The Christian life is even characterized in Scripture as a fight, as a battle. A temporal one, because as we sang, when we all get to heaven, that battle will be done. But it's a temporal battle. And the Apostle Paul uh, calls it the good fight. The good fight. There is bad fights and there are good fights. And this is the good fight, as Paul would say, of faith. You see, it's a battle to trust Jesus in the midst of difficulty and hardship. Let me say temporal difficulty, temporal hardship, and even the temporal temptation. Indeed, uh, the Lord Jesus said in the night he was betrayed, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The Apostle Paul would tell Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. We have uh, in Second Peter, or First Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. The reality is, uh, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're not in compromise or sin, because if you're in compromise or sin, then there's going to be consequences. You're going to have trouble because of that. There's no doubt about that. And the Lord also spanks us, because he's a good father, the only good father, to help us see our sin, that we would walk rightly and share in his holiness. But if you are, by and large, confessing sin, desiring to follow the Lord, doing the right thing, uh, the reality is sometimes we're going to encounter difficulties, Difficulties for following Jesus. And what do we do during those times? How can we make it through? How can we make it through when we trusted the Lord in these circumstances and things didn't go the way we thought? It became more difficult. How can we endure through those things as we're on our way to glory, as we talked about a minute ago, when we all get to heaven? Well, today I want to continue our little mini-series, in a sense, if you noticed, in the book of Matthew. We're hitting some of the highlights of what we saw years ago when we went through the entire book. I don't teach through little pieces. We've gone through this book, and so I'm taking portions of that that we've done before and looked at that and restudying those and bringing them to you as I prepare for our next study. So be praying for what we'll do next. But today we're going to see how we can endure the difficulties of life 
that we encounter for following Jesus. Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 32. 22 to 32. And now this is a familiar portion of Scripture, but I believe we need to be reminded of the realities of what the Lord Jesus reveals here in his word for us. Now, the book of Matthew is about the Messiah King, King Jesus. Matthew is about God the Son who took on human flesh to save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, came to the Jewish people, those who would name his name. And yet they were in sin, they were in darkness. And Jesus graciously having the way prepared for him from John the Baptist to repent for the king is at hand, the kingdom is at hand. He then taught and preached the kingdom. He shared the gospel, repent and believe the gospel. And he called upon people to believe in him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. And we see in Matthew, he taught and preached the kingdom. He revealed what true kingdom righteousness looks like, what a real believer looks like in light of the phonies. And then he affirmed his person being God in flesh and his teaching with the miraculous. And then after instructing his disciples in chapter 10 to send them into a midst of lost souls, uh, we see in chapters 11 and 12 the outright rejection of our Lord. And we see the Lord Jesus uh, responding to that. And we see him in chapter 13 beginning to withdraw from the crowds and begin to condemn them in the context of sharing parables using the explanations which help us understand just for his disciples because the ears and the uh, had been dull had been had been plugged and the eyes had been closed of the Jews who had heard enough in a sense and they were no longer listening they had hardened hearts so the lord veiled his truth from them and then we come earlier in chapter 14 and we have a wicked birthday feast that Herod had in which he brought about the killing of John the Baptist and then we came to another feast one initiated by the living God, where Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000, and we saw that his disciples needed to learn to trust in his total sufficiency and obey him. But yet they did not fully gain insight yet, the scripture says. And it's at this point we come to our passage today, where again, I believe we're going to see how we can endure what the difficulties that come for following Jesus, that come for trusting him and doing what is right as you trust him. Again, Matthew chapter 14, and let's start with verse 22. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, It's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
And when he got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Well, this is an amazing true story. Uh, amazing. And, uh, but yet, God does not give this for us just to simply be amazed or wowed by it. He wants us to grow in the grace and knowledge of his son, to grow closer to Jesus, to learn how to trust him even more. And so with that in mind, when those difficult storms come in our lives for following Jesus, we'll see that there. And even any storm that comes in our lives and we're not because of sin, when we have those difficulties, how can we respond rightly? How can we endure through these? Well, today uh, we're going to see, first of all, that sometimes following Jesus may lead us into difficulty, even torturous trials, uh, but it's for our good. We've got to read the whole story. You know, sometimes we don't read the whole story. We read the first part, or we think about the first part in the reality of our lives. We don't think of the whole story. And so notice here, Jesus sends out his disciples and then goes to pray. Verse 22. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he, was, while he sent the multitudes away. Now, this true story is not only in Matthew here in chapter 14, it's also in Mark chapter 6, and we'll look there in a minute, and also in John chapter 6. And you might remember, or you may know the immediate context, Jesus has just finished after miraculously feeding the 5,000 with two loaves, with five loaves and two fish. And so immediately after that, our text says, he made the disciples get in a boat and go ahead of him. He intends to come and see them later, as we'll say, and on the, on to the other side and while he sent the multitudes away. Now, what's interesting, he didn't just ask them to go into the boat. It says he made, and in the Greek language, this word is an interesting term. It means to force or compel. He compelled them or forced them to get in the boat to go to the other side. He's forcing them to go ahead of him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And more specifically, in Mark 6, we see the Bethsaida. That's where they're going. Now, some have speculated that he had to force them to go ahead from him because they wanted to stay with him. And I understand that. Lord, I want to stay with you, right? I understand that. But either way, he had to compel them to go. He is being forceful and telling them what to do. And they willingly and voluntarily obey, as we will see. And so he forces them or commands them to go ahead to the other side. And the direct implication there is that he is going to join them on the other side. He's not going to leave them alone. He's going to join them. And so what does he do as they obey and get in the boat and start to cross the Sea of Galilee? It says, and it's in the middle of verse 23, or actually verse 23, and after he had sent away the multitudes, and that was the crowds, they all wanted more food, they wanted the goodies from Jesus, they wanted the healing, they wanted the sandwiches, the loaves and fishes, they wanted the stuff. After sending them away, he went to the mountain, up to the mountain, by himself to pray. This is quite an amazing statement. And when it was evening, he was there alone. So you might remember the multitudes were seeking signs. They wanted to have their physical needs met. They even were wanting to make Jesus their king because they wanted him to deliver them from Rome rather than from their sins. And this group, John 6, they had just been fed and were trying to make him the king in that context. And Jesus sends them away and he goes up to the mountain to pray 
And it was evening and he was alone. And I find this is quite amazing because God the Son took on human flesh. And uh, he became like us, fully God and fully man. 100% human like us, 100% divine unlike us. And so in his humanity and his divinity working in perfect harmony... And yet we see in the incarnation, what we call the incarnation, where he came and and dwelt among us. He depended on the Father, just like we need to depend on the Father. He did not use the prerogative of his deity to do anything. He trusted in the Father. And here we see an example of that as he goes to pray, just like you and I would. Peter says it this way, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Well, what do we know about the Lord's prayer life from Scripture? What do we know about that? What can we learn? Earlier in our chapter 14, we see Jesus giving thanks and blessing the bread and the fish and turned it into a a meal for 5,000. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28, he took Peter and John along and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was there, he was transfigured before them. He went to the mountain to pray. And we see here uh, the Lord also interceding for himself and for his disciples. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Jesus went to the mountain and spent the whole night there before he ch- in prayer before he chose his disciples. That's absolute dependence, relying on the Father. He prayed for Peter's faith not to fail in Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, to shake you up, Simon. But he says, I have prayed for you. This is amazing. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's what he prayed for. And once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The Lord Jesus in uh, chapter 17, in in the Lord's Prayer, that's really the Lord's Prayer in chapter 17 of John, He makes intercession on behalf of the disciples and on behalf of all who would believe. And we see in the garden of Gethsemane, before he was crucified, he interceded for himself. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. In his humanity, who wants to go be tortured on a cross and die? No one does. But he said, yet not my will, thy will be done. And he went to the cross and he paid the full penalty for our sins. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7, in the days of his flesh, it says, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. So those are some small examples of the prayer life of our Lord. As he was thankful, he interceded for others, his disciples, and he prayed for their faith, their their being made sanctified in the word, and their protection, and for their unity, and to behold his glory, all kinds of wonderful intercession. And he also interceded for himself, but desiring God's will, the Father's will, to be done. So then, the Lord Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. And uh, deliberately sending his disciples away without him. Yes, he's God, but he's God in human flesh. In that time, functioning within the context of his own creation. So he goes up to pray. And I wonder what his prayer was for. It might be for those disciples. Certainly we see that pattern, right? 
and their response to him when he comes to them, as we'll see. Well, let me ask you this. What is your prayer life like? Do you pray for others? Do you pray for their faith that they would trust Jesus more? Do you pray that they would become more like Jesus? Sanctify them in your word, Lord God. Make them more like you. Take them away from sin and unto yourself. Make them holy. Help them to see things that are wrong in their life and to turn from those to you and to walk righteously. Do you pray for that? Do you make requests? Are you thankful? Are you thankful? Jesus is concerned for us. And although I don't understand it, he still even intercedes for us right now. Romans chapter 8, verse 33, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Hence, Also, he is able to save those forever who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession from them. Always lives to make intercession, excuse me, for them. Tremendous reality. So now, in light of his intercession for us and what we see in Scripture, I believe, as I mentioned, quite possibly he is interceding for these disciples. We'll see later on. He saw them struggling. He saw them struggling. You know, we don't really see our Savior that way at times where he is interceding for us, where he desires us to do the right thing and he is on our side, as we'll say. He's on our side. So then back in our text, uh, verse 23, And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain to pray, by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But, now in contrast to that, but... The boat was already many stadia away from land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. But in contrast to him praying on the mountain by himself at night, the boat was already many stadia away. A stadia is about 600 feet. Now, in John's gospel, he makes it clear that they were 25 to 30 stadia away, which would be about three to four miles out. From the, uh, out from the, from, the sea, and the, from the land in the Sea of Galilee. And he says they were being battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. John says the sea was stirred up because of a strong wind was blowing, John 16, 18. Now it's interesting, this term battered here, does not to, not, to, not to make cookies or whatever, this term battered means to be tortured. To be tortured. The waves were torturing the boat. Now, although there was at least four fishermen on that boat, by the way, uh, through that group of disciples, the Jews in, in general were not a seafaring people by nature. And so remember, the Lord had commanded them to go. There he commanded them to go into a storm. And they were being tortured, as we'll see by it. He sent them out to be battered and tortured by a storm. But as we'll see, it was for their good. We need to remember this. When the Lord allows us to enter into difficulties, it is for our good that we would trust him. It's it's good. And so that they would learn, and so that we would learn to trust Jesus and believe in who he is. You see, the Lord sends us into storms. He allows us to be tested beyond our abilities because we're prideful. 
And he needs to shred that from us. And he takes us to the point where we can no longer trust in ourselves. we got to get to that point. Trust in ourselves. Remember what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians. He said in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in the God who raises the dead. The Lord allows that to happen, so that we would trust him. We would trust him. We have, we're not to be surprised by the fiery deal which comes upon us for the proving or testing of our faith. We are to certainly rejoice when we encounter various trials, knowing the testing of our faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be complete and lacking in nothing. James 1, 1 Peter 1. And so God allows this, he allows difficulties, but he is not a distant uh, observer. He is not someone who doesn't care about what's happening to us, as we will see. He cares very much so about what happening, what's happening to us. It's all for good that we would learn to trust him and rely on him because he's good. So Jesus, uh, um, you might remember that Jesus prayed for Peter. And what did he pray in his big trial, which would come up where he denied him, remember? He said, I have, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, Peter. He's demanded to shake you up. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Your trust in me would not fail. And when you've turned, strengthen your brothers. You see, um, the Lord is good, and he causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So they've been placed in an awful storm. It's so bad that now we're going to see they're having to row, to row, okay? Uh, the waves are torturing the boat. I believe most likely the disciples are being tortured inside it also. I mean, think about it. Have you ever been in a weather event? in which you realize, that one that's really severe, where you realize your life is in jeopardy. Uh, whether it's uh, in a boat or an airplane, whatever it might be as a pilot, I've experienced that. It can be torture, because you know your life is on the line. If you crash or sink, you will die, right? So Jesus has led these disciples into a storm. And they were only there because they obeyed him. They could have said, nope, we don't want to go. Uh, could get The weather's looking kind of bad out there. I think we're going to stay back here, right? They could have said that. They didn't. They didn't. They obeyed the Lord. And some of you maybe are in storms because you've obeyed Christ. Um, maybe you're in a relationship that's broken because you obeyed him. Maybe you've graciously and righteously addressed sin in someone's life for their good and you're suffering for it. Maybe you lost a promotion or a job because you've been righteous. Not self-righteous or jerky Christian, not pious, but truly doing the right thing. Maybe you've done the right thing and left a bad church and your family and former friends have turned away from you and treat you differently. You've done the right thing. You're suffering for that. You're suffering I'm sure there's some of you here that are or have suffered for doing what is right. For doing what is right. Now, I'm not saying we suffer, we don't suffer for doing what is wrong. We do. We make mistakes and we suffer for that. We reap what we sow. 
But when you do the right thing, sometimes we enter into great difficulty for doing the right thing. But we got to see the whole story, not just part of it. Because if we look at just the first part, we won't want to obey the Lord because we won't see it as good when it really is good. When it really is good. Are you suffering for obeying Christ? Recognize, brother and sister, Jesus has allowed it. And as we'll see, it's for our good. And he does everything for our ultimate good and for his glory. So then how can we endure the difficulties we encounter for following Jesus? First of all, we need to recognize that when we follow him and obey him, we might enter into difficult situations. Secondly, we need to realize he wants us to know that he does see our struggle. He's not a distant observer. And he's there alongside and he deeply cares for us. Notice Jesus comes to the disciples in the midst of the storm, walking on the water to encourage them to trust him, to trust him. Back in verse 22, and immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened and saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now as we look at this portion here, it's a tremendous portion I also want to turn to the book of Mark. And you can do that if you want to. Matthew, Mark, next book up. Turn up to Mark. And I want you to see something because Jesus, in Matthew, it doesn't show that he saw it. But in Mark, it shows that he saw their struggle in advance. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse forty. Uh, well, 47, but it, after, in 46, he, he bidded them farewell and went to the mountain to pray. Then Mark chapter 6, verse 47. And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, and a, at, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. That's interesting. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But this is an amazing statement that God gives us some insight into this. That Jesus didn't leave them. He saw their situation. Now some question, did he see it from the mountain or did he see it because he's God? I, I don't believe it makes any difference. What we need to recognize is that he saw them straining at the oars. And the wind was against them. The term straining at the oars from Mark is interesting because it's the same word we saw earlier called torture. Torture. They were tortured at the oars, being tortured or troubled. Now what's interesting is you might remember earlier in Matthew, the disciples entered into a similar situation. Remember that? Yet Jesus was on the boat with them on that one. He was on the boat with them. Notice how the Lord takes us through faith and grows our faith, by the way. Look back. Keep your fingers in Mark and Matthew and go back to Matthew chapter 8. Chapter 8. And he's so gracious how he does it. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. 
And when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. Now this time he's going in the boat with them. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, and so that the boat was covered with waves. But he himself was asleep. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you timid, you men of little faith? And then he arose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Now he was with them on that first one, right? And they came to him like they should. But this one... He's not with them, but he isn't far away. He's looking over them. He's watching, and he sees them straining at the oars. He sees them straining. And it says, back in our passage in Matthew, and in the fourth watch of the night. Now, he he came to them walking on the sea. Now, the Jews had broken up the evening into watches. The fourth watch was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. This is a serious storm, and it has lasted for a while. He didn't come to them after 10 minutes. It has lasted. And it's because they obeyed Jesus. It's the fourth night, watch of the night. He comes to them and he says here, on, Matthew says, walking on the sea. I love this. It just thrills my heart to think about this. Jesus is coming to them walking on the sea. He's walking on the water. This is an absolute miracle. It is something only God can do or, as we'll see, something only God can enable someone to do, as we'll see with Peter. This is an absolute miracle. And again, I'm going to read from the book of Mark. It says here in Mark 6:47, And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he who was alone on the land, and seeing them straining the oars, for the wind was against them, it was about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And then notice this statement in Mark. And he intended to pass by them. You know, they're going like this and they're making no progress, right? And the wind is, they're not going anywhere. And he's walking and he tends to go by them. I think this is amazing. They're not getting anywhere. And he's going to walk right by them. And why is he going to do that? <coughs> Obviously, so that they see him. But remember, it said he also came to them. He was coming to them, but he was going to come to them first and allow them to see him, to walk by. Remember me? Right? <laughs> Remember the last boat ride, remember? And so he came to them, walking the sea, tended to pass by. And so you're in the storm. He's in, they're in the storm. And the disciples are scared to death. Now remember, he's, I think he's saying to them in a sense, you know, it's just like the one before. I saved you. I calmed everything. I've been watching. I know your struggle. I'm here. I'm here. And brothers and sisters, don't forget, Jesus sees your difficulties. He is not a, uh, a distant observer, not paying attention. When you trust him, you obey him, you do the right thing, and you suffer for it, he sees your difficulties. When you are in the struggle of your life for obeying him, he sees your difficulties. You see, when we encounter difficulties, we need to remember that he is a, a God who saves He is a God who is gracious, a very present help in trouble. Turn to Psalm 46. You probably know this by memory, but if you don't, it's a good one to memorize the first few verses. Psalm 46. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Almoth, a song. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength. A very 
present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains should slip into the heart of the sea, though the waters should roar and foam, though the mountains should quake at its swelling pride. Selah. These are very present help in trouble. And you know what? He is open and ready for us to come to him in those troubles. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, and yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And if you'll remember, when we studied Hebrews, that term time of need, or the term help in time of need, spoke of a ship falling apart where they would frap it with chains. When you're falling apart, when you're going down, he is a present help. He is a very present help. Jesus was teaching them and us a lesson. Although he was not with them physically as he was before, he was still caring for them. He was still concerned for them. And as we'll see, he would deliver them also as he did before. The Lord knows your difficulties. He knows them. He knows what you're going through. Let's turn to Psalm 23. He knows and he loves us. And he wants to teach us to trust him, to rely on him, because he's faithful. He's faithful. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Evil's the issue here. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The reality is, we have a God who intercedes for us. He is not a distant observer in our difficulties. And so what happens back in our passage? How do the disciples respond? Verse 26, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened... And it's, it's emphatic, they're yelling it out, it's a ghost! And they cried for fear. Just think, you're tortured already, right? You know, you think you're going to die in this storm. The Lord has sent them in it, and they cried out for fear, it's a ghost. Now, the term in, 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 in uh, Greek is where we get our word phantasm from. It speaks of an apparition. In the Jewish culture and many pagan cultures, they had myths of apparitions and ghosts on the waters. That was very clear in that culture. But we know there's no such thing as ghosts. There are demons. Yes, there are. But this is no demon. As we'll see, it's the living God. It's the living God. So they're tortured, and they see what they think is a ghost. They're screaming in fear. This is a trial. We think our trials are big. This is a trial. This is a trial, and it's all because they obeyed Jesus. Some of you are in the same thing. You've obeyed Jesus. And it's fearful. How would he respond to you as you're crying out in fear? Notice what he says in verse 27. But immediately, and I love this, immediately 
Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Obviously, it's close enough for them to hear him. I love this. Immediately, he spoke to them. They're, they're shaking in fear. They're screaming for fear. I love it. Immediately, he spoke to them. And notice Matthew uses his human name, Jesus. You see, our God took on human flesh. The term Jesus means the Lord is salvation. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Yeshua, the Lord saves. The name Jesus means the Lord saves. And so he says something here. What does he say to them? Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, courage, this term courage, be courageous, uh, speaks of the ability to confront fear, pain, danger, uncertainty, or intimidation. The ability to confront fear, pain, danger, uncertainty, or intimidation. And Jesus says, take courage. Now, why? Did he say, pull up your bootstraps, you'll be fine? Take courage, it is I. He says, ego emi in Greek, I am. It's me. Now, the term I am, ego emi, can be translated that way, and it usually is, but it also could be a Jewish idiom in a sense. Here I am. It's me. Take courage. It's me. It's me. You see, he'd been watching them the whole time, and he cares for them, and he cares for us. And when you're in fear, screaming for fear, he says, take courage. It's me. Be courageous. And he says, don't be afraid. It's me. Don't be afraid. When you're going through trials, you need to remember these things. And the Word of God is so wonderful in helping us remember. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God, he says. I will, he says, I will strengthen you. I will surely help you. I will uphold you. Surely I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. It is an absolute he's going to strengthen you. It's an absolute he's going to take care of you. Don't fear. Be courageous. Because he is. Because he is. And this is the God who died for our sins and who loves us and gave himself for us. All throughout Scripture, we have God encouraging his true servants to be courageous. we got a lot of wimpy cowards in churches these days. God says be courageous. Now that courage comes from the fact that he is there, and we believe it and we trust in him, by the way, not by our own strength. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble over them. That was their enemies. For the Lord your God is the one who goes before you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. He will not fail you. He will not fail you. Verse 7 of Deuteronomy 31. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous. For you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to the forefathers, to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. What does Joshua say, or what does the Lord say to Joshua in, in Joshua 1? What does he say? Turn to Joshua 1. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Joshua 1. He says in verse 7, Only be strong and courageous, and very courageous. 
be careful to do all that is according to the law of Moses, which my servant commanded. Be careful to obey his word. That's what he's saying. Do not turn from it to the right or the left. Don't turn from it from the right or the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you'll be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success, not success in God's will and taking the land as that was what he was talking about. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Lord had not abandoned these disciples on the boat. He was watching over them. You see, we have a God who will never leave us nor forsake us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Hebrews chapter 13, 5. Let your character be free of the love of money, being content with what you have. It's kind of interesting. Okay, don't, don't love money because you can be content with what you have. But what do you have? He says, for he himself has said, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. So confidently, so we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The reality is, be content with what you have. You have God. You have everything. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And the Lord says that to you today. If you are obeying him and going through difficult trials, take courage. He says he's with you. Do not be afraid. He cares for you. Don't be afraid. So what do we do when we encounter these difficulties? We recognize uh, he allows them. When we do, when we fall at times, it's because we're obeying it happens. Secondly, we need to understand he sees our troubles and comes alongside. And he wants us to be courageous and not fear. And then notice we can learn from Peter's great faith and his little faith. It's got both here. Verse 26, back in Matthew 20, Matthew 14. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened. It's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And notice Peter, the leader among equals, he speaks up here. And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. This is amazing. This is quite an amazing statement. You know, we're going to see Peter's great faith. He's got a little faith. He's got great faith and little faith. And what gets in the way? He has great faith when he's looking at Jesus. He has little faith when his eyes pull away, by the way. He says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, some say and have impugned Peter here, saying, oh, he's testing the Lord and it was sin. I don't believe that's the case at all. They're in the midst of the waves and they're getting battered. It's night, seeing something they've never seen before in their entire life. Peter wants to validate it. He wants to, is this really you? Okay, you know. And how does Jesus answer? And he said, come. That's amazing. Now, here's where the faith comes in for Peter, right? Jesus said, come. Philip 29, what happens? And Peter got out of the boat. This is amazing. He got out of the boat. And it's still storming, by the way. The storm hasn't ceased yet. And walked on the water and came towards Jesus. This is great faith. 
He believed if he obeyed the Lord, he would be able to walk in the water. And this takes amazing faith to believe that. He believed it. And he walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But notice something happens. And this happens to us. And we need to learn from it. God wants us to learn. End of 29. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, came towards Jesus. Verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and beginning to sink. Remember Jesus said, don't be afraid. Well, when do we get afraid? When we look at our trials. That's when we get afraid. He pulled his eyes off of Jesus, and seeing the wind, he became afraid, and he started to sink. This is amazing. What a tremendous lesson. And there's, a, there's you know, faith is useless, brothers and sisters, if we don't keep our focus on Jesus, by the way. Peter believed it, but his focus went off Jesus. Our faith is not in just words, it's in Jesus. And he was right in front of them. And he pulled his eyes off of Jesus, and he started to sink. The reality is, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. It's not simply believing a Bible verse. Yes, that's God's word. We believe that. It's believing him. He said it. I believe in him. I trust him. I trust Jesus, the person of God in human flesh. So Peter pulled his eyes off, and he started to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Here we have the shortest prayer in the Bible. Lord, save me. And what did Jesus do? I love this, verse 31. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. Isn't that great? Peter was close. He was close, but he got distracted. He was trusting the Lord, but his eyes got pulled off Jesus. And immediately he stretched out his hand. Don't we do the same thing at times, brothers and sisters? We exhibit great faith, trusting in Jesus. We're trusting him, but suddenly our eyes get pulled off of him in the trial. And we begin to sink. And we need to turn to Jesus with the same prayer, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately helps. The reality is we have a gracious God, and if we come before his throne of grace, we'll receive mercy and find grace in time of need. In time of need. He's gracious. And notice, Jesus and Peter now walk back to the boat. They're walking back. He's held out his hand. He saved Peter, and they're walking back. And Jesus graciously and lovingly reproves Peter, and maybe us. Verse 31, and he said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, he's walking back to Why did you doubt? And he says that to us. Why did you doubt? Why do we doubt Jesus? He's good. He's gracious. He's kind. He's merciful. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just. And he loves us. Why do we doubt in our little tiny trials? Why do we doubt well, we put our, take our eyes off Jesus, don't we? Onto ourselves and onto our trials. We don't allow him to stay in the forefront. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. That term fix means turn away from other things onto him. Why did you doubt? Well, remember why he doubted. Seeing the wind and the waves, he became afraid. He began to sink. We get fearful about our trials. And we begin to sink rather than trusting Jesus. 
We must keep our eyes focused on Him. So let me ask you this. What things in your life has caused you to pull away from uh, undivided attention on Jesus? Are you focusing on the storms, the trials, whatever it can be? If you focus on that and you become fearful, you will sink. You will sink. It's not that the storm didn't exist. It's not that it didn't exist. It's that he pulled his eyes off Jesus. Jesus is teaching him to trust him. He's teaching in us, teaching us to trust him. Be strong and courageous. Don't fear. Don't be of little faith. Don't be of little faith. We see Peter later on trusting the Lord amazingly. He's learned the lessons later on. Look at First Peter and Second Peter. Look later on in the book of Acts, trusting the Lord. He's learned the lessons. Not perfectly, but as we should. Well, how do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Do we just simply make a Jesus in our head and fix our eyes on that? How do we do it? The reality is we must see him through the eyes of faith as revealed by himself through the word of God. Luke chapter 24, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning, Jesus is sharing this, it's about Jesus, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. God's word reveals Jesus. Get your eyes in his word and focus on Jesus through that. See who your Savior really is. Be reminded of his character. Be reminded like we're being reminded today. It's just what we're doing right now. It's the same thing. Fix your eyes in the context of prayer, dependence on him, going before him, casting your cares upon him. Lord, save me. Why do we doubt? Because we get fearful. We pull our eyes off of Jesus and we get fearful because we look at the storm apart from our Savior who has it completely in control and is doing it for good. Well, some of you might be sinking pretty badly today. You've really pulled your eyes off Jesus and you're not focusing on the things above. You're not seeking his kingdom or righteousness. You're trying to address your trials. Confess that lack of faith. Be strong and courageous. He is. He's there. And do not fear. Trust in Jesus. Trust in him. And you'll be safe. He'll use it for good. So then, back in our passage, he says, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And then look at verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Isn't that great? Folks, the Lord allowed the trial to continue while he graciously reproved Peter while he's walking along. He didn't stop at that point. But when they got in the boat, it stopped. Now, at this point, you say, Okay, I've got it down. I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus and trust him and be courageous and not fear. Okay. But we need to learn one more thing. We need to learn from their response. We need to learn from their response. Look at verse 32, and it says, The wind stopped, the end of 32, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Who were those in the boat? Well, we know it was his disciples, don't we? He sent them across. These disciples worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. They worship the living God in human flesh. This is the proper response. We are to worship the living God. We're to worship him alone and serve him. 
as he reveals himself in the word, we praise him and we worship him for who he is. Now, on a side note, the church has kind of messed up all the term worship. I mean, they've, they've made the word worship equals music. That's not what it means. We can worship in song, and we do worship in song, but worship does not equal music. The reality is they worshiped him here by declaring truth. You are certainly God's son. They worshiped him. They bowed down. And when you see him for what he is as his creation, we bow down before him. We praise him for who he is. The spirit-led declaration of truth is worship of God. And that's what we want to do here. That's why the songs we sing are about him, not about us and how we feel about him. We're to worship God as spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So they worshiped him. They finally got it. The disciples didn't gain insight, it said, from the feeding of the 5,000. They got it here. They got it here. You are certainly God's son. Psalm 2. They understood who God's son was. Son was, by the way. These are Jews. They understood the son of God in relationship to the father. They understood that. You are certainly God's son. Remember Psalm 2. Worship the Lord with reverence. And rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath will soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him, who take refuge in the Son of God. And Jesus is the Son of God. So what should be our response to this true story? Worship. Praising him. Thanking him for who he is. Psalm 118, I love the Lord, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God and my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Worship is the right response. So how can we endure terrible trials? We need to recognize when we obey Christ, we might enter difficulty. But he's right there watching over us, caring for us. And we need to be strong and courageous. Take courage by trusting him. And if we start to slip and sink, we need to get our eyes back on him and realize that's why. Cry out, Lord, save me. Now, there's some of you here today that are actually in great peril and you don't know it. You're about to go into eternity for judgment for your sin, the precipice of, of, of punishment. You see, God requires death for sin, and hell is the second death. But Jesus, the same God who walked on the water, will save you if you say, Lord, save me. He'll save you. Brother and sister, if you're a disciple of Jesus, like those in the boat, we're going to go into situations that cause difficulty. Don't be fearful. Don't be afraid from them. Keep your eyes set on Jesus. Trust in him in those situations. He is faithful, and you will find yourself worshiping him and giving him all the praise. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not experienced your saving strength from sin, that they would be delivered today. And Lord, for those of us who have been delivered, may we see you rightly as our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
Lord, may we recognize from this wonderful, true story that you watch over us, you care for us, and even the difficulties you send us into, you're right there. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you so that you would be greatly glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.